Hello and welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them, and how to try not to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. I'm Giles Alderson and I'm recording this under a sheet in a hotel room in Italy where we are filming the docu-tv series at the moment. So I've been up a mountain all day, putting up tents, getting stuff ready. It's been fun. So, but this room is echoey as as anything echoey as you can possibly imagine. And it's probably echoey even though I'm still under a duvet. (laughs) And I'm incredibly tired, Um, but we're getting stuff done. And that's what it's about. And that's what this podcast is about. It's about you going out there and getting stuff done and hopefully learning from what people say on this podcast, learning how to go out there and make films and try not to make the same mistakes we made when we made our films. So this week... We have on award-winning director and Emmy-nominated producer and founder of Telefilms, Kristen Baker. Some of the films, TV series she has made include I Hate Tommy Finch, The Throwaways, The Bridget McManus Comedy Special, Riley Power, Better Angels, Season of Love, I Hate New Year's, A League of Our Own, and Christmas at the Ranch. Kristen also won Best Director at the London Raindance Film Festival for a work for... Maybell, uh, a series that follows the story of a 35-year-old gay woman in the South after the death of her mother. And over the last four years, she has made five features on SAG ultra-low budgets. And she had a lovely chat with me all about how she makes her films and distribution and why she set up her own distribution platform called Telefilms, which, as she talks about on the podcast, is a very niche streaming platform specifically targeted at LGBTQ plus women's content. Now, she set this up because there really wasn't anything like this around and she wanted to tap into that audience, which has become incredibly successful and is the first LGBTQ network to receive an Emmy nomination. The SVOD platform has a wide library of the best LGBTQ plus women's titles and thousands of paid subscribers. Suppose the majority of their million dollar revenue goes back to the filmmakers, enabling them to make more shows. We talk about that on the podcast and why you should do shorts to start a career. How you find investors, crowdfunding. We talk about turning a web series into a feature. We also talk about distribution scams and the importance of a good poster. We also dive into making a feature film, what directing's like for her, making LGBTQ plus films, plus directing style, the importance of shot lists, and should filmmakers like yourselves create your own streaming platform. Ah, there's so much. You're, you're going to love this episode. I had such a lovely chat with Kristin. Yeah, we also talk about predatory distributors as well. So there is so much, so much for you to learn uh, from this week's episode with Kristin. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Whether it's week in, week out, or whether you just drop in, we really, really do appreciate it. If you do like this, tell your pals. That's how we grow. It's so important. And if you're feeling nice, just jump on the socials and say, hey, listen to this week's episode. It was a classic. Tag us all in. We'll retweet it. And we might even give you a shout out love as well. So why not do that and support us? Speaking of support, all those who have watched The Stranger in Our Bed or Wolves of War in the last couple of weeks or, or listened to last week's episodes, obviously we had our special on The Stranger in Our Bed uh, and last week we had our special on the making of Wolves of War. I directed both of those. If you didn't know, I'm sure you do if you listen to this regularly. Apologies for the double whammy me promotion. Sort of apologies, not really, because that's what I wanted to set this up for to let you lot know that we're not just hosts, we're filmmakers as well, and we make movies. So whenever one of our movies comes out, we want to tell you about it and how we did it. Uh, And that includes next week's episode uh, with Dom Lamar, because he produced When the Screaming Starts, of which the director, Connor Burrow, will be joining myself and Dom Lamar to chat about how they made When the Screaming Starts. Can't wait. That's going to be fun as hell. And for all of those who have given us so much love for The Stranger in Our Bed and Wolves of War on the socials, please keep it up. If you have watched them or you have listened to the podcast, do please reach out on our socials. It really does mean a lot to us. And why not go on to the IMDb or um, Amazon and just give it a nice rating. It really does make a massive difference. And the main reason for that is we need to support indie film because there are some trolls out there and we've seen it where they'll just go on IMDb and give everything one stars. 
and nothing any indie filmmaker does is one star. And these people are just, <laughs> they're just not nice people. Who goes out the way to do that? Doesn't matter what you think of the film, it's just mean. People work hard on indie films and people care and they bust their asses. So you, as part of our movement of indie filmmakers, and that's what we are and that's what we're trying to do and support and support and support, then you need to do the same. So go on the socials and go on wherever you can review, rate and do it. Be nice. It does make a difference. Obviously, be honest as well. That that doesn't hurt. But we do need to support each other much, much more and try and kick out these people who are trying to bring down indie filmmakers. I don't know why. They just do. So, that aside, remember there is so much bonus content from both those episodes of Stranger in Our Bed and Wolves of War specials on our Patreon. If you want more of that, if you want more behind the scenes, there is loads. We've recorded for ages uh, on some of those things. And our lovely editor Toby has put together even more bonus content for you about how we made those films. Plus there's loads of stuff on there. Link to that is in the show notes, but it's Patreon forward slash The Filmmakers Podcast. Right, enough of that. Let's get to today's episode with Kristen Baker, creator, owner of Tello Films and fantastic director in her own right. Here it is. Enjoy. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. You didn't start off in filmmaking, did you? you, you your journey no. was quite different. Yeah. How did you get into it in the first place? Well, I did, I did actually move to LA in my early 20s out of high school. And I sort of did more of the studio route. So I worked very briefly for Regency Productions mm -hmm. in their story department. So I learned all about coverage, script coverage, and like how that impacts and still does, you know, how scripts are read, how they're considered. Mm. Um, and then I went to work for the Writers Guild of America. And I worked in the TV credits department. And then I worked in uh, I worked in membership and TV credits department. And it, that was also amazing of like how are writing credits determined what happens when someone rewrites and, mm -hmm. you know, the arbitration process. And so I learned just a ton about, you know, obviously I'm not a lawyer, but I learned a lot about like the legal rights of lawyers. And then I just got sort of burned out and actually went into not moved from L.A., went into nonprofit work for like you know, 13 years, but still doing filmmaking on the side, like still like I just couldn't shake this horrible bug of like wanting to tell stories. You, you made short to begin with. And I think it's a it's a great route in. How did you find that process of going, OK, I want now I want to move to being a filmmaker. I want to go back to my dream and the bug that's inside me. Well, I knew that I I needed to if I was going to continue to grow and grow my business. So I had in making digital or short form series, I had three Emmy nominations. I had worked with some amazing people and I still could not get the press or recognition from sort of the Hollywood or, or you know, that sort of like mainstream press. And I realized that... And I just want to point out, I could have jo told Jeffrey Katzenberg this before he spent billions of dollars on Quibi. I was like, dude, short form is not the way to go. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter. It, it does not matter what stars you have. There is still a not enough respect for short form digital content. And, and I do understand why to a certain extent, because there's so much. And so how are press people going to cover it? But I just realized if I don't do a feature, I'm not, Tello's not going to get recognized. You know, I'm not going to be recognized as a filmmaker nearly the way you do when you can do a feature. Mm -hmm. I also, though, knew I needed to figure out equity financing. I needed to figure out how to take investors, how to set the company up. And so I, my focus in 2018 was to figure this out. And so I was really lucky. I had two people mentor me. I asked a ton of questions. I figured out how to set up the LLCs the way I needed to. And then I was also really lucky because, you know, I'd done a ton of crowdfunding. And that's where I started with my investors was anyone who had given $500 or more to one of my crowdfundings. I went specifically and asked them if they would be willing or interested to invest in my movie. And the minimum was $5,000. And some said yes, and some said no, but I was able to cobble together enough people who said yes, 
to make my first feature. And I still needed crowdfunding because I, I couldn't do it all. So, and I, on that one, I, I did it in tandem. I did the crowdfunding and I had uh, people who gave to be investors, like kind of, I did it all at the same time. And so I was able to raise enough in the first feature to uh, be able to fund it and then um, release it. And I, in addition to that, you all kind of talked about your sophomore movie, right? Like your second movie. Mm. I was very, 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 very lucky and, and fortunate and like blessed, whatever word you want to use, that my first movie made a good chunk of change when it was released. Enough that I went back to my investors and said, would you like to roll your investment into my next movie? Perfect. And I had 80% said yes. So there I am for my next one, like kind of ready to go. And then I was doing a crowdfunding campaign for that one as well, which did not go as well. But it also, we launched it like during the pandemic. So, because we launched it when we were, no, we launched it while, we launched it while we were filming it, but some of it ran into the pandemic. And so we really just, ha- I was like, we're not going to ask for any money yeah. now. Because our movie, again, I keep going back to Dan's podcast because I just listened to it. He shut during the pandemic, but got shut down. We got shut down right. No, we didn't get shut down. We finished literally, our wrap date was March 14th. Wow. Wow. Two days later, everyone shut down. Mm-hmm. So we were lucky to get in right before the pandemic shut us down. So I've just been really lucky that I've had investors roll their money into the next project. And I've had enough. I've had new investors, investors who rolled, and my films have made enough to at least be able to put that date you know, on the calendar to say, this is when we're going. Mm-hmm. Are you in or are you out? Yeah. So that's fantastic. That's kind of how I've been able to do it. And then, you know, and I will say crowdfunding is a wonderful way to unearth those supporters who have a little bit more money or expend, you know, income that, you know, they can put into now they, a lot of them can't do it every time, but crowdfunding is a wonderful way to kind of find those people who can support you in a, in a more meaningful way. You just have to be able to ask for it. And that can be really hard because then you'll get the dreaded no. And that we don't like hearing that word. No, it's really hard. And I think people frightened of crowdfunding because you're putting yourself out there to say, Hey, yes. give me money, handout type thing. And I remember backing away from it for such a long time going, no, 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 I don't want to do it. But yeah, I was always putting into other people's and I never thought, Oh, look at them with their handout. Not once, but yet, when I thought I'm going to do it, I felt like I was yeah. going handout. And then when I did it, it was like, oh, okay, it's hard work. It's like a full-time job, but you can do it. And like you say, those yeah. supporters will be with you for life. They're investing in you, really. I mean, some friends are just sticking mm-hmm. money in and some people are, you know, but those people who are putting, like you say, more than 500 in are investing in right. you for life. And you look after them and they'll probably put into your next one. Uh, jumping back a little bit for me, it was Riley Parry, your first feature is that right well interestingly enough riley para was originally a web series right okay that we did two seasons and that one we i had two actresses get nominated for a daytime emmy for that one Mm -hmm. and then i was trying to figure out distribution i was like i need to figure this out it's it's a crazy world of like weirdness i'd gone to the Cannes film festival a couple times so i actually hired someone to cut Riley Parrot together as a feature. I see. Okay. So it was sort of one of those features that I did over time. And it, I thought, well, you know, this actually kind of cuts together as a movie because not a lot of time had passed between season one and season two. Mm. So it is both a web series, put it together as a feature. And we did some editing, like some scenes that I didn't really like or didn't, I didn't think went well. In season one, we just whoop, pulled them out. We were able to get them out. I was like, whoop, well, that's gone. That disappeared. Okay, cool. And so then I took that to the Berlin Film Festival mm-hmm. um, as a pitch. And I had like a one pager and a sizzle reel. And I ended up getting distribution, a distribution company. And so then I went through all the like QC process mm-hmm. and, you know, all the stuff that the comes with like. You have to do. It's a lot. Which was like, <laughs> and I kept telling myself, you're learning. This is a learning process. Mm. You're not, you've never done this before because it's, it's that part of filmmaking that is like, 
not the creative part, right? Like it's yeah. the part that we try and avoid, mm-hmm. but it's necessary. Yeah. Well, you can't you can't put your film out. You you know distributors won't take your film if you haven't done all the deliverables. And I'm doing at the moment doing them at the moment for Three Day Millionaire, and these deliverables just go on forever. And it's stuff, and it's more stuff, and it's filling uh, out this form and this, and you've got to do it all. And it's all legal, and it's all done properly, and you've got to do it to protect yourself as well. For one thing, yeah. errors and emissions insurance. You know, it's so important. All these things that. Yeah. You should be doing way before, <laughs> not when you're delivering yeah. the film itself. Yeah. But it happens with independent filmmakers, like you say, we're learning and we get better. But on web series, I, I remember being in Kate Modern and Lonely Girl 15 back when I was acting. Oh, yes. And they were big shows. They were, you know, they were, we were BAFTA nominated. They were, those were huge. Oh my God, Kate Modern was like epic. Oh, right. I was, I was Steve in that show i was like the steve guy oh who was, my gosh yeah i was him i was creepy steve for a while and then he became not creepy anymore it became nice steve <laughs> so i was in that and then we crossed over and i went over on to lonely girl 15 and i remember thinking this is going to be amazing you know we were breaking out as like the first web series yeah. type shows and everyone was talking about it but yeah. it never really went anywhere it was huge on bebo do you remember bebo bebo was a thing oh gosh lord yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was like a channel, wasn't it? Like an online channel. And we were mad. We had like five million hits uh, an episode. And they're like, oh, y'all were huge. Five minutes an episode. And like these ridiculous numbers. And then it all moved over to YouTube because Bebo died. And it just, it, it died too. And I remember being really sad. It was just kind of this everyone put so much effort in, but there was no reward. There was no, nothing happened. It didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Just collapsed. So Web Series is a wonderful way to start things, but they don't seem to go. It's that thing, isn't it? It's great to make something and put it out, but the making money back is really tough. It's it's not easy. It's it's a short film. It's yes. it's just like a short film. Yeah, basically. You know. Yes. Yeah, and we were able to like fill tele content with web series for a little mm-hmm. while. Like that's like that's how I was able to like oh, okay, we're gonna launch one new piece of content when we were exclusive. It was like one new piece of original content a week, which was really hard. But if I could string out something like a Riley Para that was a feature and chop it up and like mm-hmm. put it out, it was like, okay, I'm fulfilling, like, you know, I'm feeding the the beast on my very, very humble, tiny little uh, mm-hmm. budget. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you just can't get, you know, in order to get recognized, you need people to watch it, spread it on social, and you need press to review it. And press just is like, nope. You know, unless you... Yeah, and they see it as a kind of student thing. And I don't know why it shouldn't, because some of them are so well made yeah. and so well done. You know, there's so many of these kind of Star Wars ones, or there's uh, Rebecca Gold was done. And there's so many of these really cool sort of dramas. And they just get, you know, it's really hard to get that recognition. So I really like what you did. You went, okay, well, for me to make money on this, for me to move forward, you're like, okay, I'll turn this into a feature. And brilliant, you know, to get Riley Parrott. Yeah turned into a feature and made money i never actually got any money from my distributor so that sounds standard sadly it's so sad and it, but i learned i was like okay this is not a, a good path and i have like a i've seen crazy posters of the movie in russia in germany mm-hmm. and you know all over the place and mm-hmm. i'm just like and they, they have yet like i think i have to force them to send me like could you please send me like some kind of notification is how it's doing and you don't get anything and you're like well it's sold in brazil for two thousand dollars it's sold in you know russia for 500 and you just don't see any of now the good news is i i had already made kind of made my money back on riley because it was on tello under subscription so for me i wasn't a filmmaker i was very very lucky that I wasn't a filmmaker who had investors to pay back as such yeah. to pay back or mm. explain or go, I'm so sorry. Here's, you know, because it was crowdfunded. Look, you can find us on demand. Yeah. yeah. I was like, you can find us on demand, but that's it. And we have no money. And this poster that has a helicopter in it has nothing to do with the movie. Cause we don't have a <laughs> helicopter in it. You know, it's like stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. And you're just like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah. So I was like, all right, well that's not a, viable route can i just ask you what do you think you did you think you did anything wrong with a distributor when you signed that was there anything you could have done differently now looking back from my understanding from again what i've heard from people who have done podcasts like this one Mm -hmm. that's pretty standard is they have 
a, a, a high marketing fee that you have to reach. They're redoing your poster. They're, they're selling it. You know, you're just not getting, and I didn't have like major, I had some Star Trek people who were in it, but mm-hmm. not like, not, you know, a huge like A-list name. So I don't know from, again, from my understanding, the contract was pretty standard. I think, I can't remember when I get it back, like in five years or something. And I had an 18 month out that I, you know, just didn't really pay attention to. So, and the thing too, is like, it still sits on Tello, makes a little bit of money on Tello, but I don't know that I could have done anything to be honest with you. It sounds like that was a, that was a pretty standard in the movie distribution deal. Mm-hmm. And like you say, you got it out there and you could say that, but luckily you had Tello. Let's perfect time to talk about that then. So you set it up for your web series and your shorts and things like that. But then suddenly it became a really interesting platform and you always went with the LGBTQ angle. If I'm correct, I believe you always did that. Specifically lesbian and queer women, not, not, not the whole letter, not Mm -hmm. all the letters, just, Mm -hmm. just a few of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's hyper niche, hyper niche, even so. Yeah, absolutely. So you were like, look, this is the channel. This is what it's for. It is for lesbian and, and queer, you say, films? Queer women, just because, like, women, you know, yeah. bis- I don't want to leave out the bisexual, pansexual, people mm-hmm. who identify as queer, non-binary. So I try and, like, I say, I usually try and say, like, lesbian and queer women, just to be all, all-encompassing. all Got you. Yes. And I suppose when you started it, there wasn't all the letters in a row like that anyway. So No, we would say lesbian. Yeah, yeah we would just yeah. be, like, lesbian and bi or, some, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. Oh. So just, yeah, trying to... T- being all inclusive. Yes. And what you did by that is you were very niche. And that is huge in this business. If you're niche and you tackle that market, well, that's where your audience is going to go. They're going to go, well, I want to watch one of these films. I know I'll go to Tello because that is exactly what I'm going to get. So you you literally cornered that market, right? And did it brilliantly well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, great. Uh, How was it actually setting up something like that? Was there any pitfalls? Was there problems? Was the issues with you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, talk us through that because people want to do it all the time, set up something like this. I effed up so many times, it's incredible. (laughs) Um, I don't know if we can curse on the podcast. You can. I'll, uh, okay. Yeah, no, I've made a lot of fuck ups on on that one. Um, so here's the thing, though, when when I started Tello, it was at the same time that Hulu was putting up a paywall and Netflix was releasing House of Cards. So Tello is like one of the older, oldest streaming platforms mm. out there that's still around. You know, we've seen a ton of them like come and go, and even more now, like that have started up again and. So the, there always is sort of this wave of like, oh, let's do this. Oh, let's start the streaming platform. But we've been around like, you know, from the early, early days when it wasn't as easy. It is so much easier now to start a streaming service because when we were starting, we were having trouble finding a payment platform that could do reoccurring payments. So we had to go with a very, very clunky PayPal. And then PayPal had all these rules that was like, you couldn't increase the subscription amount more than 20%. We were charging $3.99 a month. I was like, I would like to now charge $4.99. And they're like, no, you can't do that. And I was like, what do you mean I can't do that? Like, that's crazy. And then we realized we wanted to get a better um, CRM and a better like reoccurring payment processor and PayPal wouldn't release our subscribers to this other PCI compliant site. So I was living mm-hmm. and, and, but we had to move to a different platform and I was just like, I'm never ever using PayPal ever, ever again. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So I actually, now we're on a Vimeo platform, but, and they said, well, we're thinking about using PayPal. And I was like, let Please me don't. just make sure they will release the subscribers, not to me. Like, I don't want the subscribers' uh, credit card information. No. They were releasing it to another PCI compliant one. Anyway, so, but we were having to build it ourselves. So, and I had no money. So I'm very, very lucky that I had a very good friend who's like basically my work husband who could build and design websites. And we just slowly tried to make it as user-friendly as possible, mm. you know, without... Netflix and Hulu money. And so then, then, 
you know, we went into, so we were existing on that. We did figure out the reoccurring payments. That was a game changer. And then, then all the apps started mm-hmm. and that's wicked expensive as well. But then around that same time, I mean, we had to build everything from scratch. That's just turnkey now. But so now we're on a Vimeo platform that mm-hmm. does OTT and builds apps. So, you know, I, we did research, we interviewed some companies and ended up going with Vimeo. And so now anyone can contact Vimeo or or any of the, you know, places and can say, hey, this is what we want. You know, here's the and they go, great, here's the template. We'll build out this. I mean, you need a little bit more more money to start it up, but mm. so so you're saying it would be much easier now to start up something like this oh, a streaming platform. Hundred percent. Hundred percent, because we weren't kind of fumbling around in the dark, you know, like, like we were having to build the button where you could click it, and it says, "Do you want to watch the next one in the series?" Yes. You know, like, but that's all turnkey now. So we were having to try and figure that out, where like I would have to l- literally go point, like, "Oh, here's the next one in the series," and then we'd have to build the button to take it to the next one. And mm-hmm. So yeah, and and analytics, you know, are much easier on Vimeo to, you know, they have a great dad. They have another, this is a Vimeo commercial cause I'm sure they all do, but we, you know, we were trying to like guess, you know, so many things back then and like cobble together that is, you know, here it is on a, on a dashboard. You can figure out mm. which one's the most watched and blah, 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 you know? Yes. Yeah. Which is so useful to you to know what works and what, uh, cause I imagine that, like any Huge. of us, when we're clicking on something to watch, it's all about the poster and maybe about the log line. We might watch the trailer, but it's usually about the poster. If the poster looks yeah. cool, we like the look of it, or there's someone in it we like, we literally click on it. That is what we do as consumers. That's it. You know this because that's what you do. So yeah. getting the right poster is so important for filmmakers when on any platform, yeah. doesn't matter how good your film is or if the poster's not good enough, no one's going to click on it. That's just fact. Hence why yours had helicopters yeah. in it or whatever, because someone goes, well, oh, they'll, they'll click on it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. They'll click on it. Well, and you know, that's why too, like Netflix, and I don't know if anyone else is doing this, but like I've noticed mm. Netflix will have four images for the same movie depending on who you are is the image that they'll serve up. And I'm like, every time I go in and I'm like, Oh, Peaky Blinders, which I have not watched. I'll notice like the, the image that they have for me is a female and then I'll click into it. And the other image that they have is of a male. And I'm like, Oh, you cheeky bastards, you know how to get me. Mm. So it's, you know, so there's that kind of thing as well that, you know, again, Vimeo doesn't have that, but I mean, I know my audience, they want, two chicks kissing usually is what they want in the poster, two hot chicks, you know, something like that. So, but for something like a Netflix, like that image that they serve up, well, they'll try and match to the best of their ability, like the algorithm of what you watch. What you like and what you want. That's so clever, yeah. isn't it? They know what they're doing. Yeah. They're really, they're spending so much money on it. So it's fascinating. It really data, is. Data, data, data. Yeah. Data, data, yeah. data, data, absolutely. So now you know that you've got already got distribution for your own films, which must like, yeah. It must have been incredible to sort of go, oh, hang on. I don't have to go through this whole rigmarole necessarily of selling it around the world. If I don't want to, I can just put it up on Tello. I already have a distribution company. Did that really help then getting Season of Love? Obviously, you mentioned anyway, it was kind of some of your crowdfunders that you moved forward into the next film and you just yeah. managed to piece it together did you find though that you could say yeah but we're going to put it on this platform which is specifically for lesbian women yeah that that was a absolute no no brainer for the first one because i knew going the distributor route was not the way to go so what i wanted to figure out was what is the correct route to get the best roi mm-hmm. for my investors because as a filmmaker you have in my mind and some people might disagree. So, but for me, when I, when I pitch my movie, I want to do two things. I want to make a great movie for my community. Mm -hmm. I want to tell the, tell stories about my community and I want my investors to get their money back in that order. Those are the two most important things. And so I never go into a movie or a project without going, will this get money back for my investors? What's the ROI on this? So I've had three years now and three different distribution models to figure out. And I'm still tinkering with it, to be honest with you. What's the best ROI? 
is it going straight to tello is it you know looking at other avenues because like one of my films we ended up i hate new year's going on tello and through an aggregator and going okay because you think well if i'm on amazon amazon and itunes and and all the places i'm going to get more people instead of getting 10,000 people to watch it in the month of december i'll get a hundred thousand people mm. and I'll probably make more money and these great things will happen and blah, blah, blah. That did not happen. If I had a hundred thousand people watching it, I did not see the return on investment for it. Uh-huh. So now I'm like, okay, I can't do that. That's not, I made more money with, I hate new year's renting or buying it on Tello than I did going wide. And I had person after person telling me now nah, you're wrong. Like you'll make more money going through an aggregator on these. And I was like, nope, that's not right. Okay, scratch that off the list. So then now we have Christmas at the ranch. And one of the things that we're looking at doing right now is what are our international sales mm-hmm. opportunity, which we've never really done before. And I have a sales agent who's fantastic, who I absolutely trust, who you know is working on... So with Christmas at the ranch, we released it on Tello mm-hmm. in December of... This this past December, what was that? 2021. Getting my years. We released it December 2021. And then we pulled it because I was like, I have to get money back for my investors and I can't wait another year. And my sales agent was was kind enough to go, okay, fine, release it, get all the money that you can, and then we're gonna go to Cannes and we're gonna sell it internationally as a new movie because we got no press internationally. No, we got great domestic press, mm-hmm. which really helped and it had all these other implications for our subscriber numbers. Cause if, even if we release something on rent or buy, we always see subscriber number increase. So that's another piece of the puzzle that we can see that's different than just like, Hey, I'm an indie filmmaker. I'm going out wide, but now we're, I'm going, okay, let me try this salesperson to see what happens if we do an international push. Can we see the ROI? Can we see another, you know, 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 through MGs through different countries. Yeah. I, I have no idea that's something that we're looking at testing right now. And, and she is selling. And I know we've had a couple of uh, international companies want to buy it and distribute it. And then we'll be able to see, okay, and they're offering a small MG mm-hmm. and then it'll be, okay, how much are we making in these international markets? Like, is it doing well year over year? Like, so I can see what it does on Tello. What's it going to do over here? And now we have Mary and Gay and we're w- trying to get, um, that's coming out this holiday season. Okay. And we're trying to shop it, have a big domestic streamer um, to pick it up. And we think we'll be able to, but we're not sure. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, and then hopefully going on Tello as well. See, that's super exciting because like you say, you can put it on Tello for a bit. It's just exclusive for your audience. That's great. They like that. And then you can go, yeah, it's not out anywhere, guys. Go and go put it out somewhere. Uh, let's see what happens. Yeah. I, I, what a great model. And if it doesn't work, you've put in your contracts. I imagine, yeah, after 18 months, we take it back or however long you want to put in there. And then you put it back on Tello. Exactly. But I imagine, can, can people in Russia and people in Spain get Tello as well, right? They can get Tello. They can. Yeah. They can. It's not subtitled and it's not dubbed over. So I still feel like it's it's still not, even though it's available, it's available English language only with subtitles or with captions, excuse me. So it's still technically like they're going to take it and put, you know, Russian sub- subtitles in there or mm-hmm. I don't think they're dubbing it over, but maybe they could do that too. Yeah. So I still feel that it's had a huge distribution, which helps us. Um, be able to go internationally over there. Yeah. And like I say, you can, you know, you can get up to 40, 50 MG you can sometimes, or, you know, the return on that. As long as you're getting money back, if you're going, well, look, so territories we weren't going to sell anyway. And there's a chance to get some money back for my investors here. Exactly. And we don't have to worry about it ever again. It's going to get pirated anyway in Russia and Spain. And it's these places, right. th- it's just how it works. It's probably already been pirated. And that's what it's so horrible as indie filmmakers that people still do this and you're kind of like oh god how are we supposed to make our next film uh guys do you not care no all right well i just i thought i'd support you by watching it on the zoom you're like yeah Yeah. but no it doesn't really work that way does it not for me the one that kills me is when people like 
for a couple of my movies, people would like put together a fan video and then someone in the comments would go, this is great. Where can I see it for free? And so like as often as possible, I try and go in and the people who are are like, no, you need to buy it. Like Mm -hmm. I've seen a couple of people like you can buy it here. I don't know where it's for free. And, you know, I'm hoping people are like scared of the torrent sites and like, you know, because they get, you know, or, or I hope those people (laughs) who go to those sites get horribly infected with their computer because that's karma yeah. and like <laughs> f you guys for like not being cool. totally i agree and it's so it's, it's it's almost like now people expect things for free they go oh cool i'll download that for free it's it's like a given that they they go no hang on people have spent time and effort doing this shit and you're just going oh yeah. i just torrented it somewhere and you're like but <sighs> don't you see you're causing the problem let's go back a little bit to you directing then let's talk about you actually being on set and how that felt for you yeah. you know with after riley Powell and then you know making season of love and you're now yeah. making a feature it's an actual feature. you're not doing a web series where you don't necessarily know where it's going to go what's going to happen who's going to watch you're making a feature where it's a specific audience and it could go yeah. wide it could play wide how was that for you then to step into that talk us through the actual money side and, and setting it up and getting your cast and doing it all like you would ha- obviously you've done it before but now it's a feature. Talk us through that. First and most important thing is to find a script that you love. Mm. And so I was really lucky that a writer named Kat Trammell sent Season of Love. Oh, she just sent it cold as well. Like We did have, well, I met Kat at a um, shooting a, a, a project that I directed called Passage. Ah, okay. And I was like, and I had said like, hey, we're going to have a contest. Like Tello's going to have a pitch to production contest for a holiday rom-com you should submit if you have an idea. She was like, oh, that's cool. And so we actually went out uh, as a contest because the big thing that would always happen during the holiday season is someone would, would say, there are no LGBTQ holiday rom-coms. Oh, here's one, but it's an ensemble. Mm. There hadn't been before Season of Love, there hadn't been an LGBTQ male or female holiday rom-com released where the lead couple was an LGBTQ storyline wow so we're the first that wow. ever came out in 2019 what? that was a holiday rom-com yes and because we're so tight that oh, what would, what had happened was and i have i've gone in like i've gone to like i've gone on a twitter war with someone who was like that's not true and i'm like yes it is there was a short and there was a holiday movie it was not a rom-com it was a it was an ensemble holiday movie mm-hmm. that had you know lgbtq leads but not that sort of hallmarky, quintessential, you know, girl, girl falls for girl, girl yeah. loses girl, girl gets girl in the end. It, there was nothing like that that was out until Season of Love Amazing. in 2019. But because we didn't have a huge budget for press, mm-hmm. you know, we were like, and we were really lucky that uh, an actor named Dom uh, Provochakli was in it and had a huge fan base. Right. And so their fan base really helped lift up the movie and got a ton. So our social presence was incredible, but our press presence, you know, we didn't get the press that we get now because I have an amazing publicist. But the thing about holiday rom-coms is you will always, always with LGBTQ, usually be in a list of what LGBTQ holiday rom-coms are coming out. And so we get national press, which I didn't realize at the time. But anyway, back to your question. So we had an amazing script and I have a fantastic, I had a fantastic casting director. So we cast a few people that we knew that we liked. Mm-hmm. It was very important for us to have diversity. So we have three couples in um, Season of Love. They are, each couple has a woman of color in it. So we really tried to, um, to you know, make it as diverse as possible. We, our other goal was like to really try and cast queer identifying women mm-hmm. so we, we we really tried to focus on all of those things and um we i shot it in la because i had the crew here i'd shot everything in la up until that point and i have an amazing crew so i was like okay we're gonna shoot this here in la and we we went through sag paperwork which can be a you know oh yeah really difficult sag is sag is fun Mm-hmm. Luckily in the UK, we hardly ever have to deal with it unless one of our actors, which happened on Three Day Millionaire, lived in LA, well, lived in America. Mm. It meant suddenly there was a SAG issue. So there's ways around it in a good way. There are ways to make it work, but you then still have to pay 
the sag right There's, you can't you can't get around that and that adds to your budget there's no budget you didn't expect oh, to pay totally. it's really frustrating totally. but do, at that point had you obviously you, you're casting now at this point had you raised all the funds so you were in a position where you'd obviously the people yeah some of your uh, crowdfunders had put some money in but uh, and like you say you knew your budget was small i had some of the money by then so i had gone out and we set up uh, I set up Season of Love LLC, so set up a company, set it up so that 25% of the ownership were subscribers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, were uh, investors. So, and depending on the amount you invested in that 25% was was how you were paid out. So the waterfall went deferred payment. The investors got 120% of their investment back. Then the second part of the waterfall was the investors received, we split it into three groups. So this tier, what we call tier two, after the investors got paid back their 120%, yeah. 25% went back to the investors. 50% went to our creative people who had points on the back end, our creative pool. We called them pools. Mm-hmm. Then the third one went to a producer pool. So the producers all waived our fee wow. and we were part of the back end. So I waived my director fee. I waived my, all the producers waived their producer fee. So we wouldn't get paid. I take that back. I got, excuse me. I did get some deferred payment uh, when it came out. Okay. So then, then it went to the waterfall. So, so we deferred payment. So that's how we set up the company. I probably, I'm trying to think by, by the time we, we were shooting in May, we launched a crowdfunding campaign, like, maybe mid-March to mid-April. I like mm-hmm. to run a 30-day campaign because yeah, I think too. a 60-day just, you want to shoot yourself in the head. Oh yeah, 60 days too long. Yeah, even three weeks is better. 60 days way too long. Yeah, 60 is crazy. Yeah, so we did a 30-day campaign. We ended up raising 60, around 60, $65,000 wow. on the crowdfunding. Well done. Which was amazing. Wow. Once we announced Dom PC, yeah. like the crowdfunding just went through the roof. Because she was in Avengers Age of Ultron, right? Yeah, and she was in a very popular TV show on sci-fi called Winona Earp. Winona Earp, and, of course, yeah. Yeah, so, and we also had, you know, um, Jessica Clark, who was an, an amazing out LGBTQ actress, had fantastic fan base from a movie she did had a perfect ending so you know we had some like people who were known in the community that was very helpful but yeah once we signed on dom it was like we we had it and so with those funds we were then able to go into production and my you know i created a budget i think it was i you know we were sag ultra low you know it's a two hundred fifty thousand dollar budget and just really like bag borrowed and stole and just squeeze the lemon as much as possible to make it because we had multiple locations shooting in la is also expensive because the permits are expensive workman's comp you know the insurance that we have to get is much higher sag requires a, a holding fee which is like as an indie project that holding fee can just absolutely kill you and then you're counting on that holding fee for your post Mm -hmm. because you don't have a contingent i mean like people are like what's your contingency i was like there's no contingency yeah there isn't one i have a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget like come on (laughs) my contingency is like a packet of gum you know some loo roll (laughs) everything that you can goes into it so like and so you're fighting to get that back as soon as yes. possible and get all the things that SAG needs and pay into their pension and health, which then, again, you have fringes, you have pension health, that's popping your budget way up and mm-hmm. doing the paperwork three times. And, you know, I have four different hats that I'm wearing, but we were able to, I, I have a, a very, very like hard rule in my head that I do not go beyond a 12-hour day. There was one day in the last three years I've gone into one 14 hour day and it broke my heart. But like, I just, you know, I move, I have a DP that I've worked with for five years. He's amazing. David Chung, right? David Chung. He's phenomenal. And we just have a shorthand now that we can get a ridiculous amount of pages in a day. So I know that I have to get a minimum of seven pages in a day. Mm -hmm. And you know, the actors know that they come ready. Like, I just, you know, I just have a really amazing, amazing team. I, you know, I call them my film family. Yeah, totally. And, you know, some people have come and gone. And some people go high. Yeah, go. That's it. They get snapped up and others don't work out. Exactly. And you're just like, oh, but 
But, you know, I have people who have come back over and over again who I just am so lucky and, and absolutely adore. But I, but the next movie, I did move to Nashville. Mm. And I've started, I, I, that's kind of where I've been doing production now for the, the last three years. So I Hate New Year's, Christmas at the Ranch, Mary and Gay, and my two scare B&Bs are all shot um, around the Nashville area. And your directing style then, how do you like to work with the actors? How, what ha, Have you learned over the time things that work or don't work or working with your crew? That'd be interesting. I will say, uh, you know, every time I direct a new movie, I, I just get, I become a better director. Mm. I, I'm able to, you know, really understand how to work with the actors, how to get across what I'm, asking for and then i also tend to bring the same actors back and so like i have a shorthand with again with my dp david like for example i love working with actors i love the moments those acting moments and david is just such an artist that he really knows the way the shot should be set up the way it you know look like i'm making sure everyone looks the way they should but david really is like here's where, you know, here's the frame, here's the this. And I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. So I really trust him implicitly. And so, so much so that on this past shoot that we just wrapped on, we were far away. I was at Video Village and he was up by the uh, camera and he turned to me and he yelled, he said, Kristen, can I give Marvin a note? And I yelled back. I said, yes, I have the same note. And we hadn't talked about the note. And sure enough, on the next take, David said something. I don't know what he said to him. He had to spin into the um, into his line, so he had his back turned and he spinned into, and he he did exactly what I wanted. Yeah, with that, it shows that David understands what you want as a filmmaker. You know what I mean? He understands exactly. your vision, and that is vital when you're filmmaking. There's nothing worse than having that clashing of a DP and a director it's just the worst yeah. you have to be on the same page you have to yeah, trust each other exactly yeah and so we implicitly like and if I don't like something which and I'll just say like David I don't like that and then and then he kind of knows what I'm looking for I've actually said one of my favorite actresses to work with is an actress named Dia Frampton and there was like she was doing something on marrying gay and I looked at the frame and I just said I'm in the next room I go Dia I don't like that and she flipped and she get, and I said that's it that's good like so when you have that kind of shorthand where it's like I'm doing this oh no no I know what I'm doing that Kristen doesn't like I mean I've even said to my makeup I said to an actor one time I looked at him and I said I said I need more makeup on your eyes tell Pam she knows what I want so the actor literally went back to my makeup person and said, Kristen's, Kristen wants you to do something different with my eyes. She said, you'll know what she wants. And Pam goes, yep, hang on, sit down. And sure enough, when the actor came back out, I was like, yep, that's what I want. Like, that's how, that's, but that's why we're like efficient. We love each other. We're moving quickly. My, my chief lighting technician, Gaffer, absolutely loves and adores my DP. They get along really well. So it's like, there's just like, someone described it as a basketball team. The way we move, because again, we have to move fast. We because I don't have a budget that doesn't allow us to move quickly. When you can create a shorthand like that, and it's like, oh, like you don't have to. I don't have to sit there and explain to Pam, my makeup person, what I want. Pam's worked with me for five years. She knows exactly what I want. So when someone goes back and is like, Kristen said, you'll. She's like, yep, have a seat. Let me fix it. Isn't that wonderful? Absolutely, I love that it's description incredible. of basketball team. That's absolutely yeah. right. You're all playing down the field together to field the court together to put the you know to put the basket in you know ball in the basket and then the same you're all defending at the same time you're putting out the fires you're trying to do stuff together i love exactly. that analogy i think that's fantastic yeah what well, do you storyboard yeah. and shot list we shot list we don't we don't storyboard we shot list extensively so mm. my dp and i are usually on a call for about nine hours it <laughs> ends up being nine yeah. hours we yeah. go through every single bit of the script I've scouted the location because he's in LA. I'm in Nashville. I've taken extensive like video or photos and we go through and we really, and that's where we actually do a lot of rewriting too. Yes. Um, yes. It's amazing how much of the script we adjust based on location and based on like, wait a minute, hang on. Why would they say that? No, they would say this, or we need this to happen. And so we actually do quite a bit of rewriting as we're going through the shot list, but we do an extensive shot list that does sometimes change. Mm -hmm. Like if we see something in this past shoot, 
we had a wide and it looked so good. And the performance was so good. I turned to David and I go, I think this is a one -er. And he goes, yeah, we have coverage listed, but I'm super happy with this. I was like, me too. So we just scrapped the rest of it where we were going to go in for coverage, but it just, it works so well. Didn't need it. Yeah. Didn't need it. It's the magic of those moments is, is incredible that you can share with your DP, your production designer, or, you know, your actors where you've just got that moment where you're thinking, oh, oh, uh, God, we've got a lot of coverage to do and we've got like, you know, 30 minutes. How are we going to cover the scene? And something magical happens. Well, actually... We just get them to stand there or we they, we just move the scene just outside. We can do this in a, a moving master. And that just comes yeah. into a close-up or it turns into a two-shot. It turns into something. And yeah. then we might just need an insert shot and we've got the scene. Cut. We can cut away to exactly. it if we need to. And that's yeah. clever filmmaking. That's thinking outside the box and not being rigid with, no, we must do it this way. And that makes right. good directors and filmmakers, right? You're not rigid. No, no, not at all. We're super, super fluid in the moment. And I think you had mentioned, I can't remember if it was you or one of the other podcast hosts, but you all kind of talked about like how beautiful like a longer scene can be as well yeah. and how powerful it is not having to cut into it. And if you have those moments and you know it, why are you jumping in and, and, and throwing us out of the scene mm -hmm. when it sits really, really well? So I kind of like those wonders as well because I think it really create some beautiful moments of connection yes. and it's also trusting yourself i remember saying to my dp andrew roger on the day we had this shot of a kid running out the house quite a long run into a big close-up with a tear down his face you know he can't now leave where he should be leaving and he has to stop and go back because he's too frightened and i we did the shot a few times the kid nailed it every time and i went to andrew i said ah oh, I'm worried it's too long. Should we just put in a close? Should we do another shot? And he went, no, no, you said this is what we wanted. It is brilliant. Trust the process of what we were doing and just let it be. Yeah. I went, all right. And it's yeah. amazing. Of course, that's... A and, uh, and I think the worry is if you do have that footage, a producer or an exec might go, oh, it's a bit long, that. Have you got any other coverage? There is other coverage. Great, stick it in. And that ruins what you actually intended to do. And sometimes sticking with your guns and your gut and your feeling on set is more yeah. important. And, and going with it. It's like, all right, I might have messed up. Maybe I should have got an insert, but I didn't. I'm going with it. And that's yeah. the power of a director and producer and cinematographer is to say, this is what we're sticking with because that's what we've, this is what we got. So all your films, like Christmas at the Ranch, I Hate New York, New Year's, sorry, and Season of Love. They're not all on Tallow at the moment, are they? Season of Love and I Hate New Year's, they are part of a subscription. They're also available to rent or buy if people don't want to get a subscription to the site. So those two are. Riley Para that we've kind of talked about a little bit is also available for rent or buy, and it's also part of the subscription. Christmas at the Ranch, at the moment, we've pulled mm -hmm. to you know see where else we might be able to get distribution, see if we can make a little bit more money back for the investors. Why is it called Telefilms, by the way? Television online. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. And people can find that at uh, telefilms.com. We also have apps on the in the app stores. So mm -hmm. you can find us on you know, Roku, Google Play, Apple TV. Would you suggest if people wanted to set up their own streaming platform, would you suggest to do it? Is that something people, filmmakers should do? You know, that's such a good question. I, I honestly, I don't know. I probably would say, because, you know, we also license content on Tello and that's a whole other bugaboo mm -hmm. um, of like time and money and contracts. And so I, I would, encourage people to do patreon and make content and put it up because i think it interfaces with either youtube or vimeo I, I i honestly i don't know exactly how it works but i know you can give people access to things either early or you know so i i think that's probably the return on investment and and return on time is probably better if you have a Patreon. In fact, I know someone who does a, um, a series called Drunk Lesbians Watch, and she ended up putting the longer episodes behind a Patreon page. Mm -hmm. So people who subscribe to the Patreon at a certain level get to see her projects. And I think that's a really wonderful way to, to go that doesn't have... the. I mean, it's expensive. It's at least, depending on the tier that you're at, you know, minimum you're talking about, you know, $8,000 a quarter to, to have a Vimeo site. And you're having to make new content constantly 
So I think Patreon is probably a better way to go for filmmakers or continuing to do like crowdfunding campaigns. So that would be my... And that's not because people... Because I'm thinking people are going to give more competition. But any stretch of it. If you want to start a streaming platform, go for it. Tell the stories. Tell all your stories. Go do it. Yeah, I'm the same with if you want to start a podcast on filmmaking do it you know it's do whatever. it like yeah. we need more stories we need you know people mm-hmm. to get out there and, and and make more content especially for our community but i do think patreon's probably a better way to go that doesn't pull as much of, of your time what about in terms of distributing your own films because obviously it's been brilliant for you because you have that platform to distribute now I'm not saying set up your own streaming platform to do that, but in terms of distributing films yourself, it has worked for you. And there is that conversation people are having all the time. Should we distribute our own films, like ourselves, put it on Amazon ourselves, do all the work ourselves, or should we give it to a, you know, an aggregator or a distributor to, to do that for us? I, you know, I was listening to another filmmaking podcast and one of those filmmakers had gone the distribution route Mm -hmm. and hadn't, had the same story I did, didn't get any money, ended up putting it on Vimeo for rent or buy on their own and pushing people towards that and had actually made some money that a a sales agent or aggregator distributor did not, was not able to take from them. So she was like, look, so I, I would say there's no harm in starting there and putting something up for rent or buy on Vimeo or, and if you still can on Amazon, I don't know the percentage that Amazon takes anymore. Yeah. They've changed now. It's not great. Yeah. But why not start there? Like why not start and see if you can get people to pay you, you know, where you can get the biggest ROI on a Vimeo rent or buy and then, you know, do, do other things you know, or try and, and use an aggregator. That would be my start, you know, like don't, I would stay away from sales agents. I really would. I just don't think, there's actually a Facebook page called something like predatory. Yeah, beware of predator distributors and aggregators. Yeah, Alex Ferrari set that up. It's really good. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's really good. And I think you just get screwed. Yeah. As a, I have not heard one story in, in any filmmaking podcast where someone's like, you know what? They were amazing. Mm. They were just like fantastic. I made so much money. I don't know what other people are talking about. Every time you turn around, they're like, I made no, I don't know. I, and often it's because the filmmaker didn't look at the contract properly or understand the contract properly. And therefore there's too much in there that gives benefit to the distributor. And at the end of the day, it is a business and the distributor or aggregator they're trying to make money. And if filmmakers aren't aware enough to check the contracts out or go properly, this is the most important part. <laughs> and it's really important yeah. to be on top of it. So that's why a lot of filmmakers get burnt. But I've had some success. Uh, the The Horror Collective w- were great. You know what? That's good to know. But some, I know so many who haven't, and it's a fight. And even then, sometimes it's a fight to get your money. So I, I totally get it. Yep. I understand. I would just, just like you said, like I have a sales agent right now who I really, really trust. There are good ones out there. I don't want to poo-poo them. But like, you know, do do due diligence. Check out the Facebook page. Ask people about it. Yeah. Because, um, you know, and and you can find good people yeah who can who can give you an ROI i think i've heard you know you got to yeah you got to you got to kind of do do your own legwork around it and and i'm i'm hoping i don't know did you go to can this past one yes yeah i did yeah did you like i just people were like no one's buying like no one's buying or there's no mgs it was one of from my understanding from the people that i knew and i don't and that sounds like you kind of heard the same thing like no one was willing to buy it at camp. No, they were all like, "We'll take a look after." Absolutely, I think the buzz was. I think it was the first time everyone had been allowed to be in a space like that for a while as well, in terms of the COVID situation. But what we found was the talk was incredible. The buzz was like, "Yeah," and they want my film, and they want my film. There was so much of that, but no one was actually putting their money where their mouth is. No one was coming back going, "Hey, I just got three hundred grand, or I got thirty grand." We got some offers, interestingly actual direct offers from just a trailer uh, which was incredible but whether they have given us the money and signed it there and then 
I don't know, you know, so right. I, it, it was mixed for me. I, I definitely say it was very positive, uh, this can, and I can't wait to go again next year. But it, I've heard, yeah. it, you know, in the past, there was a lot more positivity. Uh, not positivity, it's the wrong word. There's a lot more negativity, but not more sales. This time, there seems yeah. to be so much positivity, but less sales. So, I less mean, sales. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I, I don't know. It's like it's going to be, it's, it's, it's like that with most markets these days. No one knows what's happening. Yeah. And the streamers weren't there yeah. at Cannes. No streamers were there at Cannes. And that was a big problem because they were probably bought a lot of stuff. Whereas yeah. Disproofs didn't have the money. Tubi was there. We took we took a meeting with Tubi, but they weren't offering any MGs. They were sort of, you know, again, like it, it, at this point, like it's, the, you know, the MGs have gone way down. Sales to foreign has mm -hmm. gone way down. So it's, you know, I think every, I think, you know, someone said about every three to five years, the industry goes through a change and a flux. And I feel like that's, that's where we are at the moment. I think the, you know, I, I just, they just did a sales call, you know, or, or the, and it was like, what was it? Peacock is losing $500 million this past quarter. They're, they're going to lose 2.5 billion over the year. Another streamer, I can't remember which one was lost like a billion dollars. Like all these streamers are just like losing Yep, it's gonna. So many are gonna drop. So many are gonna just drop out, or they'll be bought out. What's gonna happen? You know what I mean? Well, because they certainly don't want our films. That's the thing. They've got enough films, or there certainly will be. It's kind of a case of they can't afford to buy your films right now. So some can, but it's being in with the right yeah. people. And there's a lot of us that yeah. can was very proof of that. I wonder. Cause I feel like the streamers are not in my mind. I feel like it would be smarter for them to spend almost like less money on these massive $200 million movies yep. and go, okay, here's our, here's our cap. Now let's go out and see what these plucky little indie filmmakers have been able to make mm -hmm. and offer them 2 million yep. for their film. They made for 1.5 mm -hmm. and we'll take, we'll buy them out or we'll take it for 10 years. And like, there's none of that thought. And I'm like, no. there's some indie filmmakers out there who are making great content that like you know they're like trying to push through a wall where like you know netflix was buying stuff for even three hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah it was not anymore it's like seven thousand now for like a little indie movie it's just not worth it why would we because now when it's on netflix it's free you know everyone goes oh i'm watching it on netflix they will not buy your movie why would they it's on netflix and if it comes off netflix and you have to buy it they're like oh how annoying why is, I, I wanted it uh, from my netflix exactly so it exactly. doesn't help us as filmmakers they just get annoyed with us and you're like oh, but we have to make money how I know. You know what I mean? we didn't do all this just for you know for free so you could watch a movie for free that's not what happens right. here Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What about your? It's just because you're buying movies in, right? As well, you're putting offers into people, right? Yeah, yeah. We license. Yeah. We license and then do a do a rev share. Right. You do a rev share. Okay. Cool. So no MGs. We do they some. Do? Okay. It, it, yeah. it just depends. Yeah. So right. we'll come in with like again, depending on the territory, mm -hmm. depending on you know, there's a lot of factors depending on how old it is. But mm -hmm. you know, we'll go up to the highest we've ever done is a two thousand dollar MG. So we'll do anywhere. I've done a hundred dollar MG for like a really old movie that's been around the block up to $2,000 and then, um, rev share, um, on top of that. That's great. And that really works. And it's, it's, it's obviously just uh, queer and uh, lesbian women films, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So if you have any, uh, do get in touch with Kristen. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. We have a little contact form on the, on the website. So perfect. Up. Link to that will be in the show notes. Uh, finally, then some advice on directors uh, coming up, wanting to make a film right now. What do you wish someone had told you? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> I know. Have the passion. You do have to learn the business side. So, like, learn how to ask people for money. You know, it, it, even if it's through a, a crowdfunding campaign. Do something to, you know, I think Dan's number was like, what, 10 to 15,000 mm -hmm. that he did in crowdfunding. Mine is about, you know, 20K is what I'll kind of put. I know that's something that I can raise. Um, and then through that, you can find investors who really want to support your, your storytelling. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I would say that's the thing that I knew. I knew I could make, I knew I could run a good set. I knew I could make a great, you know, 
high quality, low cost movie. I just didn't know how to get the money. And as you know, for filmmakers, that is the hardest, hardest thing. That's what stops us. I would also say figure out what's the, if you, if you don't have a trust fund or you didn't win the lottery and you can't, you know, a million dollars is hard to come by, figure out wh- how you can make your movie for a hundred, 150,000, something that's like more doable because you can, you can adjust locations, you can adjust the number of characters you have. Like there are some ways that you can figure out budget wise, like what locations do you have? You know, like Dan mentioned, he had like two free locations. That, yeah. that was incredible. Like, so what free locations do you have that you can adjust and like try and make it for, again, if you don't have someone who's going to give you a million bucks, what do you absolutely need to make the movie and, and, uh, and, and get out there and, and make it figure out how, yeah. And what you, what, not what you want, what do you need? and then go from there. Love it. As Kristen says, you can do this. Um, You can go out there and make your film. You can do it. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back (laughs) down. We will see you next Tuesday as always. This has been amazing. Kristen Baker, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Giles. Happy to be on the podcast. It's an amazing podcast. So thank you for encouraging others to tell their stories it's so important bless you and yes it so is absolutely is all links to everything we've talked about will be in the show notes do go to telefilms.com check it out check out what Kristen's doing and uh, try and do it the same get it get your stuff done and uh, be proactive get out there and do it all right take care everyone see you next week bye-bye The Filmmakers Podcast is kept going by your generous support. To hear some bonus content from today's episode and future content, subscribe to our Patreon.